Let's play a little word association game. When I say the word Texas, what word comes to your mind? Alamo? Cowboys? Football? What about fag bashing? Okay, okay, so technically fag bashing is hyphenated and would be considered two words. But for many teenagers and young adults in the Lone Star State, fag bashing was a fun weekend pastime, particularly in the late 80s to the mid 90s. Having been born in Garland, Texas, near Dallas, in the 1980s, with relatives still spanning El Paso to Forney, I was shocked when I stumbled across a pattern of assaults and murders on members of the queer community in popular cities and suburbs across the state. The true extent of these crimes is hard to imagine. Many victims survived their assaults while refusing to press charges. Of the known murders, it has been difficult to locate specific details of the attacks, few of which were ever categorized as hate crimes. While the actual count remains murky, the pattern is perfectly clear. Texas has a history of teenage terrorism. You are listening to another episode of Queerly Criminal, a podcast series dedicated to the discussion of crimes and criminals who have impacted the queer community. I am your host, Jeremy Wayne, and today we'll be delving into one case of fag bashing that took place in Dallas in May of 1988. Researching this particular case, I fell down a rabbit hole of similar attacks on the state's queer community. Several of these cases will be detailed in a follow-up episode, but today we will focus entirely on the lives and deaths of Tommy Lee Trimble and John Lloyd Griffin. Now personally, I can't watch horror films or TV shows. Who needs The Exorcist or American Horror Story when real people and events are terrifying enough? The real monsters might just be your neighbors or the boy next door. Some of these good old boys turn out to be surprisingly bad. The murders we are going to discuss were committed in Reverchon Park in the Oaklawn area of Dallas in 1988. Ironically enough, I suppose, the park was once a beautiful place. Built in 1915, it was named after the French immigrant and botanist Julian Reverchon, whose family had moved to Texas to join La Reunion, a utopian colony near downtown Dallas that survived only two years before its financial collapse in 1857. But by 1988, the park was most well known for its crime and queer cruising. The murders of Tommy Lee Trimble and John Griffin would leave a permanent stain on the park's legacy. I began my research for this episode, as I usually do, focusing my attention on the crime itself, until I stumbled across an impeccably written article in a 1989 issue of the Dallas Times-Herald entitled Prejudice and Presumption. This article by Laurie Montgomery and Jeff Collins was unique in that John Griffin and Tommy Trimble were described as sons, brothers, and friends, rather than just as victims. Montgomery and Collins also dug deeply into the background of their murderer, 18-year-old Richard Lee Bardnarski Jr. As adults, 34-year-old Tommy Lee Trimble and 27-year-old John Lloyd Griffin became fast friends. While they shared a few similarities, they were also complete opposites. Friends described both Tommy and John as sweet, polite, and gentle. Both men were born in small towns in West Texas, were raised in religious homes, and were close to their parents and siblings. Perhaps because of their religious beliefs, their small-town upbringing, or the time period, neither man had been able to come out of the closet to his parents. It would actually be the circumstances surrounding their murders that would confirm their homosexuality to the majority of their family and friends. Looking at the two friends standing next to each other, though, they would have been a study in contrast. John, at 27, was a pale redhead with a shy smile, weighing around 300 pounds. Tommy, on the other hand, was a small man, weighing around 100 pounds. He had a brilliant smile that stood out against his dark skin. Both men had dreams. As a young man, John spent years trying to gain the acceptance of others. He acted as his high school's mascot and even spent his own money to rent the Eagle costume for a homecoming weekend. He didn't believe he was smart enough to attend college, but he was a hard worker. 
At just 14, he began his first job at a burger stand on the West Texas Plains. He would go on to open a sportswear store, manage a 7-Eleven, attend floral design school, and ultimately graduate from an international aviation and travel agency in 1984. Never having been anywhere besides West Texas himself, he had discovered his passion. He dreamed of seeing the world, something his family had never done. John would open his own travel agency, but it was short-lived. In 1987, he moved to Dallas, taking advantage of an opportunity to work at a travel agency. By all accounts, he was happy living in the city. He was discovering himself and living his dream. Tommy Lee Trimble graduated as one of only six black students within the Coleman High School class of 74, a high school where he had been a dedicated saxophone player in his school's marching band. After graduating, he enrolled in a beauty school in Abilene. The school was more than an hour's drive away, so his family members pitched in to help pay for the gas he needed for the long commute. When he finished beauty school, he worked at several different salons in his hometown, but he quickly found that as a black man in a largely white town, it was hard for him to find regular clients. He realized that if he were going to succeed in his career, he would have to move somewhere more diverse, more open-minded and accepting. Tommy Lee moved to Dallas. As soon as he was financially stable, he began sending money back home to his mother, signing these letters, Baby Boy. Although he wasn't the baby of the family, he was the youngest of his mother's four sons. On the last night of their lives, each man had spent their time helping others. John had been preparing chicken enchiladas for the Bethany Presbyterian Church's picnic the next day. He had worried that he hadn't purchased the exact type of cheese he wanted to use, but he was excited to be joining the congregation as a new member and wanted to make a good impression. His neighbor and friend Debbie promised to help him finish the enchiladas the next morning, although she would never have the chance. Tommy had called his mother that day to ensure that she had received his Mother's Day card and the money and spiritual music he had sent her. The two men, who had once been platonic roommates for a short time, met up that night, riding together to a gay bar, the village station in the Oaklawn area of Dallas. They had no idea that on that night, May 14th, into the next morning, they would have the misfortune of meeting a group of young white teenagers, all students or former students of North Mesquite High School. These young men were on a hunt, and John and Tommy would soon find themselves in the crosshairs. It had been a warm Saturday in May, and a group of 12 young men and women were enjoying each other's company as they so often did. Most of the guys in the group had been best friends for several years, like Paul Robertson, Rusty McDaniel, Greg May, Darren Tribner, and Jeff Bridwell, just to name a few. But in this group, there was a relative newcomer, Richard Lee Bernarski Jr. Rick, as his friends called him, had always seemed a little off, a little awkward. According to some of the girlfriends who floated in and around this circle, Rick was loud and obnoxious. His friend James Jones explained that for some reason, Bernarski always demanded attention. He would act drunker than he actually was, and he would do almost anything to be seen as wild and fun. At six foot two, Richard was a former football player. Appendicitis had interfered with his athletic career, though, and he had joined the ROTC for a short time. Apparently, he had trouble following orders and told his friends that he was sick of, quote, play acting. Although he left ROTC, he dreamed of joining the Marines like his biological father or becoming a police officer like his stepfather. He even carried a gun in the glove box of his red Silverado pickup truck. His friends had seen it on several occasions. He seemed to enjoy the power that carrying a gun afforded him. Once he had fired a blank at his friend Darren, scaring him for no apparent reason. At a party the year before, when Richard was a junior in high school, his friend Rusty got into a heated argument with a few other teenagers in a hotel parking lot. Richard jumped out of his truck, beating on his chest like Tarzan, daring the other young men to fight him. As they approached him, he pulled his gun out from behind his back and threatened to shoot, quote, all you motherfuckers. 
After the other teenagers had left, Richard walked through mud puddles in the parking lot, waving his gun in the air and yelling at his friends, quote, I'm Jesus, y'all, I'm Jesus. Then in March, just two months before the fatal encounters that would end John Griffin and Tommy Lee Trimble's lives, there had been another wild party. It had been the one-year anniversary of two of Richard's friends. After a night of underage drinking, the party ended when Richard had become loud and aggressive, threatening another partygoer with a knife. The police were called to de-escalate the fight, but for some reason charges were never filed. I found it hard to believe that the police would ignore this underage drinking, so I did a little research into the drinking age in Texas in the 1980s. In 1973, the drinking age had been 18. By 1981, the age had risen to 19, and in 1985, the legal age became 21, where it remains today. So the parties that the Mesquite teenagers threw, and the daily drinking that seemed to transpire, were completely illegal in 1988. But the drinking continued on May 14th, where this group of friends shared cases of Coors Light and drove around their hometown. Around 11 p.m., the group stopped at a Whataburger, where a drunken Richard Lee Bednarski Jr. slapped his gun on a table before striking up a conversation with a table of police officers sitting nearby. His friends became nervous and left, with most returning to the house of Rusty McDaniel. Still wanting to have fun, someone suggested, hey, let's go egg the fags. This was something that kids from high schools in the Dallas suburbs had done many times before. Quote, we'd look and we'd laugh. Sometimes we'd joke right with them. We would mimic a homosexual walk and stuff like that. They got the idea pretty quick we weren't gay, exclaimed Paul Robertson. Although Bednarski hadn't been the first person in the group that night to suggest fag bashing, as they called it, he had been to Oakland a few times before. Once the teens had launched 16 cartons of eggs at gay men and women from the back of Jeff Bridwell's Jeep, Another time, Richard had taken his stepfather's badge and used it to harass gay men in Oaklawn. He'd even forced one man against the wall and frisked him in front of his friends. Before leaving Rusty's house to head to the village station bar, the group debated on whether to allow Greg May's 12-year-old sister Susan to join them. She had heard many stories of what went on when young people from her neighborhood visited Oaklawn, and she wanted to witness and experience the harassment herself. Hanging out with her drunk older brother and his friends that night, as they made plans to beat up unsuspecting strangers, seemed exciting, and the group allowed her to join them as they headed to Oaklawn, along with Rusty, Jeff, Paul, Richard, Greg, and his wife Michelle, and Jason and his girlfriend Nora. The caravan of three cars parked behind the village town bar, sometimes shortly after 2 a.m. As they began piling out of their cars into the parking lot, they came across John and Tommy, who were leaving the gay bar and walking towards John's beat-up cougar. While four of the teens would tell different versions of how they met and what was said, they all agreed that Richard, Jeff, John, and Tommy climbed into John's car to smoke marijuana together. At Richard's insistence, the group then drove to Revachon Park, which was a known gay hangout. Earlier, on their way to the bar, the Mesquite group had already driven through the park, where they saw several gay couples sitting together and making out. After John parked, Richard suggested that they go for a walk into the woods. Initially, John and Tommy disagreed, preferring to stay in the safety of the well-lit parking lot. Richard insisted, and the group made their way into the woods, across a bridge, and up stone steps to a hilltop. As two of the Mesquite cars pulled into the parking lot, Richard pulled out his gun. He demanded that John and Tommy sit down in front of him and order them to take off their clothes. Jeff, although willing to beat up these friendly strangers, felt this had gone too far. He turned to walk back towards the parking lot as Rusty and Paul headed towards him to join in the fag bashing. John and Tommy resisted removing their clothes, and it is impossible to imagine the bewilderment, fear, and pain that they experienced as Richard then shot each of them three times at close range. He would brag to his friends later that he had first shoved the gun into the black man's mouth and shot, before shooting the quote, fat white one, as he tried to crawl away. 
Tommy was shot in the neck, back, and stomach, while John was shot in the head, stomach, and chest. The four boys raced back to the cars, as Michelle, not understanding what had just taken place, laughed at the shocked look on their faces. She would later state that the boys looked pale, scared, and ready to be sick. The car screeched out of the parking lot, leaving Reversham Park as fast as they dared. Three strangers would follow John's screams to the hilltop, where they found Tommy Lee Trimble already deceased and John bleeding out on the grass. When police arrived shortly after 3 a.m., John was able to tell them that he had been shot by a young, nicely dressed man with brown hair who had demanded money. Officers would later explain their initial assumption that John and Tommy had been engaged in a sexual act when a random passerby used the moment of vulnerability to attack them. John would struggle to survive for five days. In the hospital, he was desperate for his friend, the woman who had planned to help him with the enchiladas earlier, to understand what had really happened. Quote, Oh, Debbie, it hurts. It hurts. They wanted to go smoke dope. They wanted to go smoke dope. On May 20th, John died from his wounds as his parents, Don and Pat Griffin, watched in anguish. At first, police had little idea of who had committed the crimes, and learning more about Dallas in the 80s, I believe that many officers may not have cared about the murder of two gay men in a known cruising spot. But teenagers are prone to talk, and with the size of the click from Mesquite, it was only a matter of days before several people learned what had really happened. At yet another large gathering at Rusty's house, Rick Bednarski actually bragged to several friends about what he had done. I blew those faggots fucking heads off, he was quoted as saying. Perhaps as a result of this conversation, there were two anonymous calls made to the Dallas Police Department. Exactly 10 days after Tommy and John were murdered, Rick McNarski was called to the principal's office of his high school, where he was arrested by the police. His bail was set at $40,000, and his parents were able to keep him home, where he would graduate high school and even enroll in college as he awaited trial. As I'll explain in greater detail, Rick had developed a very convoluted tale of what exactly had gone down that night. He would place the actual murders of, quote, those queers, as John and Tommy were repeatedly called throughout the trial, on his friend Wayne. His parents believed him, explaining that he was in no way capable of such a horrific and heartless crime. They chose to believe that instead he had been a victim of circumstance and peer pressure. Quote, I feel like Rick is taking a ride of a lot of people's mistakes, stated his stepfather Larry Glover, quote, but I'll never believe it. I'll never believe it. The case went to trial in November, at which time Rick was a freshman at Richland Junior College, now Dallas College, Richland Campus. Although two men had been murdered, the prosecutor failed to seek the death penalty in the case. He justified this decision by explaining that the victims were gay, which would offend at least a few of the members of the jury. He believed seeking the death penalty in this case would not be worth the state's time or money, and that Rick was a, quote, sympathetic defendant. The trial opened with the testimonies of Steve Trimble and Verna Griffin, siblings of the two victims. Both were just 25 at the time of the trial, and each would be on the witness stand less than 10 minutes, where they tried desperately to convince the jury to see Tommy and John as people, not just as those queers. Verna would later voice her frustration that nobody had even asked what kind of person her brother had been. They made assumptions based on the fact that he was gay, that he was out that night at a gay bar, and that he went into the woods with white teenage boys. She would state, quote, These kids, none of them had high school educations. They all lived at home with their parents. And here's Tommy and John, who both finished high school, who both had worked hard all their lives, and no one said anything about that. They were the bad people. Several of Rick's friends and classmates were called to the stand by the prosecutor. These classmates testified that Richard had repeatedly boasted about the crimes he had committed. He had also worried aloud that John might survive, afraid that his victim would live and identify him. 
Richard Lee Brednarski would take the stand in his own defense. He claimed that while he had been present in Reversham Park, he had been framed for the murders. He accused Wayne McDaniel of shooting the two men over money they owed him for marijuana. While he admitted joining them in the park to beat them up, he stated, quote, I ain't going to be a party to killing people. Although Rick had previously confessed to police in early interviews, he claimed that these statements were inaccurate and that he was being misrepresented. Fortunately, the jury saw through Bednarski's fabrications. It took 16 hours of deliberation, but they found him guilty of the murders of Tommy Lee Trimble and John Lloyd Griffin. This announcement must have relieved the families of the two men, but only for a short time. Two weeks later, the judge in the case, District Judge Jack Hampton, would shock the courtroom at Bednarski's sentencing. Rather than pursuing a death penalty, the prosecution had asked for a life sentence, but Judge Hampton sentenced Richard Bednarski to a maximum of 30 years. With that sentence, he would be eligible for parole in just seven and a half years. Judge Hampton would go on to make several statements about his decision. He believed that Rick had been raised in a good home with a police officer as a stepfather. He pointed out that Rick lacked a criminal record and that he was attending college at the time of the trial. But what infuriated members of the queer community the most were the statements that Judge Hampton made about the victims themselves. In an interview with the Dallas Times-Herald, Judge Hampton was quoted as saying, These two guys that got killed wouldn't have been killed if they hadn't been cruising the streets picking up teenage boys. I don't much care for queers cruising the streets picking up teenage boys. I've got a teenage boy. He would further belittle the lives of both Tommy and John by implying that murdering queer men isn't as bad as murdering innocent victims like housewives. Quote, I put prostitutes and gays at about the same level, and I'd be hard-pressed to give someone life for killing a prostitute, Hampton told the newspaper. Quote, In a murder case, someone is always upset. When a white is killed, the whites are upset. When a black is killed, the blacks are upset. When a homosexual is killed, of course the homosexuals are upset. And the homosexuals were upset. Kevin Barrell with the National Gay Lesbian Task Force looked at the sentence as a missed opportunity to make the statement that hate crimes would no longer be tolerated. William Wayborn, president of Dallas's Gay Alliance, found that the sentencing, quote, sends a message that it's okay to kill gays. According to the Chicago Tribune, Judge Hampton received several death threats and was advised by the police to leave the city. There were protests in Dallas and outrage across the country, but through it all, the judge remained unapologetic. He would go on to be re-elected in 1990 and 1994, ultimately retiring in 1996. Richard Bernarski would serve 19 years in prison before his release on July 9, 2007. It is extremely difficult to find anything positive about this senseless tragedy or the court case itself. But I did feel a small glimmer of hope when I read about John Griffin's funeral. Every business in his hometown, Sterling City, closed on the day that he was laid to rest. The Church of Christ was overflowing with mourners and flowers. Over 300 people attended the service and 70 flower bouquets had been received. But national attention or not, fag bashing as a tradition in Texas would continue. While I had originally intended for this episode to include several other assaults, the Dallas Times-Herald had provided so much background and insight into the lives and deaths of Tommy Trimble and John Griffin that this episode is dedicated solely to them. I plan on producing a future episode, Teenage Terrorists Part 2, with the 1991 case of victims Hugh Holloway and Than Nguyen, the 1993 murder of Nicholas West, the 1994 murder of Tommy Music, another 1994 murder, the murder of Michael Brzezinski, the 1996 murder of Nick Moreta, and the beating and robbery of Jimmy Lee Dean in 2008. For now, we have heard enough. I like to imagine John and Tommy in heaven, their friendship living on forever. 
As your host, Jeremy Wayne, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Queerly Criminal, a podcast series dedicated to the discussion of crimes and criminals who have impacted the queer community. Until next time.